Well, we thank the Lord for that reading from his holy, inspired and inerrant word. And what a glorious text it is. You'll be glad to hear that I'm not planning to preach from the whole text uh, this morning, but only from verse 20, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. It's one of those verses uh, in the New Testament which can be described as the gospel in a nutshell. There is so much in this verse in short compass and so many glorious gospel themes for us to dwell upon. But it's also a a verse which is extraordinarily relevant today because in the modern world you may have noticed that there is an obsession about identity politics. Uh, There is a great concern about how we identify ourselves and what group we belong in and therefore how we are able to relate to one another. And so this verse is of particular interest to us because, of course, this verse is all about our identity as Christian believers. You can see that even on a superficial reading. If we read the verse again, just notice how many times you can count, if you like, as we go through, how many times the Apostle Paul uses the first person pronoun. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think it's seven if my, if my add-ups are still working correctly on this Lord's Day Morning. So we're going to come to this sense with with it, to this text with a sense of expectancy to see what it teaches us about our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore how we are to live for Christ today in the modern world. And the first thing the Apostle Paul teaches us from this verse is the death of self, the death of self. One of the great features of our modern age is our obsession with ourselves. We are told that we need to be true to ourselves. We need to be good to ourselves. We need to discover ourselves. We need to tell the world about ourselves, even posting pictures of what we enjoy for breakfast, perhaps, on every conceivable medium of social media. And self-esteem is at a premium. And so it comes as something of a shock in this verse that the Apostle Paul begins the verse with a very negative assessment of himself. Look at what he says at the beginning of the verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Now, that is as radical as as it can be. Essentially, the Apostle Paul is saying that his identity is dead and buried. He is saying that he is finished. He is saying that he is no more. Now, what does he mean by that? How has he come to that conclusion? In the ancient world, there was perhaps no one who was more entitled to a positive self-assessment than the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian, when he was still a Jew, a Pharisee, when he was Saul of Tarsus. 
because he was a brilliant man. He had had the best education of anyone in his culture, sitting at the feet of the brilliant Gamaliel. He was a Jew. He was proud of his identity as one of God's chosen covenant people. He was highly respected as a Pharisee. He was a leader and a teacher in his community. He was respected as a man of great moral principle and fastidious religious observance. But now we come to this verse, and he has this extraordinarily negative assessment of himself. He is saying that he has died. So what has changed? What has happened? And the answer to that question is very simple. It is that he met with the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. You may be familiar with that account, that as he was on the road to Damascus to persecute the church, he had a vision of divine glory. And from that moment, everything changed. If you read through the Bible, you find that whenever anyone meets with God, they are overwhelmed by a sense of the glory of God and by their own guilt and unworthiness. You think, for example, of Moses at the burning bush. Take off your shoes, for you stand on holy ground. You think of the prophet Isaiah and the, and the, the passage we read this morning from Isaiah chapter 6 and his call. He found himself in the presence of the holy God, and he was overwhelmed by his sense of unworthiness. Woe to me! I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Or think of Ezekiel, stunned and overwhelmed. Think of Daniel, we could go on and on. All of these were pious men. They were prophets, they were priests, they were giants of the Old Testament age. If you compared the lives of these men to the lives of others around them, these men would have been considered outstanding. But in the presence of God... They realized that they were unclean. And so it was with Saul of Tarsus then, as he lay face down on the Damascus road, blinded by the light, he realized that all of his morality and all of his religious observance was worthless in the presence of a holy God. Now all of us would like to think that we are good people. And perhaps we are in the eyes of ourselves and in the eyes of other people around about us. Uh, You'll be glad to hear that I did my research before uh, preparing my sermon and coming to preach to you on the Lord's Day, and so I googled on the internet how I could become a good person. I was faced with pages and pages and pages of self-help guides. One of them began with the first suggestion here. Here is what they said. Number one, Determine what being a good person means to you personally. In other words, no one even knows what it means to be good. You just have to make it up yourself as you go along. Determine yourself what it means to be a good person. What do you think the standard is? But remember the encounter of the Lord Jesus Christ then with the rich young ruler. They began to talk about what it means to be good, and Jesus' words were very simple. No one is good except God. You see, there is an objective measure. There is an objective reality. There is ultimate 
and glorious holiness. And that is the measure. And that is the person whom Saul of Tarsus had encountered on the Damascus Road. And he testifies that from that moment on, as it were, he died. And there will come a day when each and every one of us will stand in the immediate presence of God. And we, all we will be, feel will be guilt and shame. Because in the light of God's presence, we will know that all that we deserve is his wrath and his condemnation. Have we kept his laws perfectly? No, we have not. Have we loved God or loved our neighbor? No, we have not. We might be righteous on the outside, but what of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts? And Paul here in this verse has come to the realization that there is nothing in himself that is worthy of God. He writes elsewhere that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, if your standard is the court of public opinion, then you can do just fine. If your standard is being popular and well-liked, then that's no problem. The problem is that in the presence of God, we are lost. And until we come to that realization, we cannot be saved. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And unless we recognize that we are sinners, then we do not qualify. And we need to come to that point. We need to come to that point of desolation. We need to come to that point of emptiness. We need to come to that point of hopelessness and the death of self in a world of self-esteem and high self-regard. We need to come to an end of ourselves. But then you say, well, where is hope? What is hope? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul doesn't end there. He moves on. Secondly, we think of the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Look at the end of verse 20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, we cannot save ourselves, but at the point of our greatest need, God himself has intervened in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us that the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. Isn't that astonishing? Isn't that astounding? Why should God love me? What is there attractive about me? What is there worthy about me that should earn his favor? There is nothing. There is nothing good or righteous about me. I've come to that conclusion already. I'm condemned by the law. I'm condemned in the presence of God. And yet this infinitely glorious and eternal God, the creator of all things, has chosen to love me in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I who am a rebel against him, I who am unworthy of his attention, yet nevertheless the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. What a glorious theme that is. Doesn't that speak to our value as human beings? It brings us back to where we began, the question of our identity. If in our identity we can find no value in our own achievements and our own works and our own merits, yet nevertheless our identity is found in the evaluation of God, of us, 
And praise God, by his pure mercy and grace, he has chosen to love us. And that's our value. What a glorious testimony that is, if you're a Christian believer here this morning, to be able to say that the Lord loved me. He loved me in my lostness. He loved me in my sin. He loved me in my unworthiness. He loved me in my rebellion. And not just the love of sentimentality. No, it was a love that went into action on my behalf. At the point of our great need, the Lord Jesus Christ came and took flesh and lived amongst us. And he obeyed the law perfectly in every way. In his words, in his thoughts, in his deeds. And then on the cross, he became our substitute. And he bore the wrath, the condemnation that we so richly deserve. He loved me and he gave himself for me. So that all of that guilt and all of that shame and all of that unworthiness is now nailed to the cross of Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. There is the old story of Charles Dickens. I don't know whether anybody reads Charles Dickens anymore. There is the old story of Charles Dickens' tale of two cities. You may be possibly familiar with it. Charles Darnay has been condemned to death in revolutionary France. I'll spare you the details. And he awaits execution by guillotine in the morning. But then he is visited by his friend, well, sort of friend, Sidney Carton, who looks just like him. Sidney Carton drugs Darnay, exchanges clothes with him, and while Darnay is carried out of the prison, Sidney Carton goes to the guillotine in his place. Now, as far as the French revolutionaries are concerned, you see, the execution has taken place. They are no longer pursuing Darnay because as far as they are concerned, he has already died. Justice has already been served. And that is precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying here when he says that I died with Christ. It is as if we who are sinners died on that first Good Friday. We look back and we see the Lord Jesus Christ hanging there on the cross bearing the judgment of God. And we notice that it is our sins that were judged and being consumed there in that place of sacrifice. When a sinner has died, the penalty has been paid in full. And yet we look to the cross, and we are in Christ by faith, if we trust in him, and he has died as our representative on our behalf, and so we have died in Christ. It's gone. It's finished. It's dealt with. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. See, the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the penalty in full, so that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the life of guilt and fear and shame is dead and gone. Look at the cross. 
Christ has taken them there and dealt with them there. And my question very simply this morning is, have you come to that point yet? Have you come to that point of realization that, first of all, you have nothing to bring to God and no merit and no worthiness in his presence? And secondly, have you come to that point of recognition that our only hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ crucified? Because that is the testimony of the Apostle Paul here in this verse. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is my identity. It is the cross of Christ which is my only boast and is my only hope. So we've seen the death of self, we've seen the love of Christ, and thirdly and finally now we see the life of Christ, the life of Christ. And now we come to the meat of what the Apostle Paul is saying in this verse. There is a sense in which everything else is foundational up to this point. You see, the issue is this. We have said that I no longer live. That is the testimony of the Apostle Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. The old life is dead and gone. But the problem which the Apostle Paul is addressing here in his letter to the Galatians is that the I loves to reassert itself. I'm rather afraid that many of us... uh, 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 came to Christ at the beginning of our Christian journey and we were happy to say at that point, at our conversion, that indeed we had nothing in our hands to bring, simply to thy cross we cling. We were happy at that moment to say that all was of Christ. But as we make progress in the Christian life, so we lapse back into a greater self-confidence and a greater faith in ourselves. And this was the situation in the Galatian church. If you just drop down a few verses to chapter 3 and verse 3, you'll see what the Apostle Paul says there. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, they are beginning again now, post-conversion, to begin to trust in their flesh and in their own good works they begin to consider that there is now a certain status and a certain advantage to be had by adhering to Jewish laws and specifically to circumcision and to the food laws. Now, there is something of that in all of us, not specifically circumcision and the food laws in our age, in our generation, in an overwhelmingly Gentile congregation, but that sense of increasing self-confidence and self-reliance. And it works very simply like this. We begin to serve the Lord. And in church life, we get caught up in all of the activities and the programs. And we become quite busy. And all at once, that self-confidence begins to creep in. And we start to say to ourselves, you know, I'm actually quite a good Christian. And I'm making quite a valuable contribution. Indeed, I'm not really sure what the church would do without me. Of course, sometimes I stumble and sometimes I sin and sometimes I need to come back to Christ for forgiveness. 
And of course, I need to pray that the Holy Spirit would give me a little bit of help every now and then in the Christian way. But I am making overall very good progress in the Christian life. And now do you see what has happened? The I has begun to reassert itself. And we have lost the emphasis that Paul is bringing in this verse. I no longer live. You see, the Apostle Paul is writing not in the past tense about what his experience was when he was converted back on the road to Damascus. He is writing in the present tense about his present Christian apostolic experience. I no longer live. Every day that is the Christian testimony. Well, Paul, if you no longer live, where does your life come from? And the Apostle Paul tells us, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's what he says in the middle of the verse. In other words, I am naturally dead and powerless in my sinful condition, but now the spirit of the living God has come down and given me new life. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ has come and taken residence in my heart. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 3. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. The heart is the control center of our lives. So that if Christ is now dwelling in our lives, he is now in charge of our lives. He is guiding and directing us. He is setting the priorities. He is empowering us. He is enabling us to serve God. And so we need to realign our thinking with what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Perhaps you are making progress in the Christian life. Perhaps you are growing in love for God and love for others. But the question is, where did that come from? And Paul says, not I but Christ. So that as we throw ourselves into the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us to do, and as we make plans for the future, we do all of that in complete dependence on his power and his direction and his enablement. It's not just that Christ helps us to live the Christian life. No, Christ enables us to live the Christian life. Life. It is not me plus Christ. No, it is not I but Christ. And that's why prayer is at the heart of our Christian lives. That's why prayer is at the heart of our church life. Because that's how we express this dependence. We cry out, Lord, without you, we can do nothing. And there are two very simple applications to all of this. And the first application is one of identity. Identity. Who are you? I said at the beginning that identity politics is very popular nowadays. If someone asks you, how do you identify yourself, what would you say? Perhaps you would talk about your nationality or your, or your ethnicity or your gender or your educational background, or your class, or your sporting prowess, or your musical ability, or your job, 
or your status in society, or your wealth, or lack of it, or your family circumstances, and so on and so on and so on. Who is the real you? How do you identify yourself? How do you think about yourself? How do you reflect on yourself and your identity? And the Apostle Paul would say that all of those designations that I've listed are almost completely insignificant. He says later on in chapter 3 and verse 28 uh, that indeed in Christ... Uh, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that when you're converted and you become a Christian, all those things cease to exist. In the new creation, we will still be men and women. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will still be those from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. So our ethnicity, our culture, our background, our heritage is not completely erased. There will be a rich diversity in the new creation and we will all bring our gifts and our personalities and our individuality which God created us with. We will bring them then to employ them in the service of the Lord in eternity future. But do you think that in the new creation that we will be obsessing about our skin color or our nationality or our educational background or our career and our status or our family circumstances. No, we will not. Of course we will not. In the new creation, we will be utterly unself-conscious. We will be completely consumed with the priority of loving and serving Christ and loving others. And indeed, in the new creation, there will be no more sin. We will love neighbor as we love ourselves. We will love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. There will be no uh, uh, selfish ambition, no hatred, no lust, no war, no exploitation, no deceit, no discontent. In other words, in the new creation, we will be the people God created us to be. Uh, Perhaps you've got a little confused as we've been considering this text this morning, all this business of, I have died, I no longer live, Christ now lives. Well, who is the real me? Sometimes you read Romans chapter 7 or you read some of these verses in Galatians and and you say, well, Paul, who is the real I? Is it the good I or the bad I? And which one is the real I? Which one is the real you? Who is the real you? Who would you say is the real you? Let me tell you, the real you is the person that God created you to be. And the person God created you to be is you glorified. You transformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You without sin. And insofar as sin still lives in our hearts and our minds and our lives and our experience, it is twisting, it is distorting, it is diminishing, it is crushing the real you. That's not who God made you to be. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Sometimes I try this thought experiment. I find it a very difficult thought experiment to imagine myself without sin. 
It is a difficult thought experiment because I come to the conclusion that sin pervades my thinking and my emotion and my heart and my mind and my speech and my activity and my sense of humour, perhaps particularly my sense of humour, so comprehensively that I find it difficult to disentangle godly personality that God created me to be and yet how much that has been twisted and distorted by sin. But God created you to be you, but glorified and transformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Apostle Paul is saying essentially in this verse is start living like that now. Not I, but Christ. You see, in the Galatian church, there were these barriers being erected between Jews and Gentiles. Oh, no, you can't eat at that table at the fellowship lunch. No, no, that's, that's, for the, that's the kosher table for the Jews. You're just a Gentile, you understand. You, you have to eat over there at the second-class table. And the Apostle Paul could so easily have boasted about his Jewishness and his privileges. But he did not. The only thing that was important was that they were all in Christ. And at that point, these matters of race and ethnicity and gender and background and status became irrelevant. One in Christ. And that's the unity of the church family. No snobbery. No reverse snobbery. No discrimination. What a wonderful testimony that is between a watching world, which is obsessed with identity politics and wants us all to put us all in little boxes and then stack up the little boxes and tell us where we are in the pecking order, which sometimes is a good thing and sometimes is a bad... uh, Generally, it's a bad thing to be at the top of the pecking order nowadays in, in your box and setting one group against another group. No! The Apostle Paul says, Not I, but Christ. If we are in Christ, then we leave all of that behind. And that brings us to the second application, which is all about priorities. And it is simply this, that our priorities in life are not to be determined by our class or our culture and still less our selfish ambitions, but by Christ. And the great example of this is the Apostle Paul. Because he was willing to sacrifice everything in the service of Christ. So if he is seeking to reach Jews, he emphasizes his Jewishness. Perhaps he even tells them stories about his life as a Pharisee. Because that will give him a degree of kudos in Jewish company. If he is seeking to reach Gentiles, he becomes a Gentile. That is absolutely extraordinary. I live in Finchley. That's where London Seminary is. And you may know that North London is a rather Jewish area. It's a wonderful sight on a Saturday morning to see these beautifully dressed Jewish families walking to synagogue. It makes me think that perhaps 100 or so years ago, that's what it would have liked, looked like for, on a Sunday morning for beautifully dressed families to be walking to church. But now it's the Jewish families who are walking to, walking to synagogue on Sabbath morning, and they are of different levels of orthodoxy, and some of them look just quite westernized and quite British, and others make a point of not looking that way, and they have the long ringlets hanging down and the beards, and some of them, even in the heat of summer, wear these extraordinary large 
woolen Russian hats on top of their heads. I think some of you can imagine what I mean. And they are sending out a message loud and clear, I am Jewish, this is my identity. And it's very important to emphasise your identity. And if I was to go up to them and say to them, hey, come on, we're all together in this and you don't need to be so serious about your Jewishness and let's just get together and come home and let's have a bacon sandwich together. Well, I mean, that's grotesque, isn't it? That would be unspeakable. I'd probably get a punch on the nose and I would deserve it. Because they would say to me, no, wait a moment, being Jewish is who I am, that's my identity. I was born Jewish, I was brought up Jewish, it's my culture, it's my nature, it's who I am. And yet here is Paul. He was more Jewish than the most Jewish Jew, and yet he was willing to become a Gentile. Because he says circumcision is... What an extraordinary thing to say. What a radical thing to say. And yet if Paul can say that, well, look at the testimony, for example, of Hudson Taylor, missionary to the Chinese. It was in the days then, of course, of British imperialism and you go out as a missionary and you live on the, on the missionary compound and you live the British lifestyle because you are, of course, you know, an envoy of the British Empire. And then the Chinese are outside the gates, as it were. And Hudson Taylor goes into that and he says, no, this is not going to work. If I'm going to reach the Chinese, I need to become Chinese. And he says, hang this about being British and British identity. And he grew his hair like a Chinaman and he wore Chinese clothes and he ate Chinese food and he, be- he lived amongst the Chinese. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Not I. What is your identity? What is your identity? It's Christ. It's Christ. And now for each and every one of us, whatever we're doing in life, whether in church or at home or at work or in the community, we live for Christ. We live as Christians. That's our identity. We are Christ men. We are Christ women. And in the workplace, we represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps sometimes you think about that when you go into the workplace. What image do I project in the workplace? How do I come across? Well, how do you want to come across? You want to come across as an ambassador for Christ. How would Christ want you to come across in that situation? In your family, we are living and serving as pleases Christ. In our community, we are bringing the lifestyle and the attitudes and the priorities of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that means sacrificing our prejudices and our politics and our cherished worldly values, so be it. If it means leaving cherished personal preferences to one side, we'll do that. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ living in me, that's the important thing, isn't it? And then the only things which are really important in life are those things which honor him and please him and are used for his glory and the extension of his kingdom. So we begin each day and we say, how can I serve you, Lord, today? How can I see the world through Christ's eyes? How can I speak on behalf of Christ? How can I act as a servant of Christ today? And by the way, 
Lord, I can do none of this in my own strength because I am dead. I no longer live. Only Christ, come live within me and energize me, enable me, guide me, direct me, enable me to live for your glory in this way. You see, that's what we are. We are Christians. That's all. Not I, but Christ. And on the last day, when we stand before the throne, we will see that so very clearly. And we will look back on our present lives and so many things that we were proud of now and so many things that we boasted of now and we saw as part of our identity and part of our status. And on that last day, we will cast all of those crowns at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and we will say that only he is worthy of all honor and glory and praise, not I but Christ. Amen.